As we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, we uh, kind of started chapter five about uh, midway through, got to verse 20 last week. So we pick up our story. If you recall, Jesus, you know, he, uh, in chapter four, they um, went across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and then when they got to that other side, uh, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, Gadara, uh, the land of the Gadarenes, uh, they met the demon-possessed guy. And we saw the people of Gadara cared more about pigs than people. Uh, and uh, that's really a condition of today. Uh, what, what, you know, the pigs, something that they shouldn't have, should have had. It was kind of a symbol of their own sin. And they cared more about their sin than having Jesus in their town. They, they actually prayed. We saw three prayers. The demons prayed, hey, can we go to the pigs? Jesus said, yes. The people said, we pray you to leave our country. And Jesus said, yes. And then we saw the demon-possessed guy who was healed sitting there in his right mind. He said, can I follow you and just be with you? And Jesus said, no. Interesting three prayers. We ended that last week seeing how sometimes, um, you know, the no is actually a huge blessing. And this guy that was demon-possessed and then healed by Jesus, he would go all over the Decapolis, the Decapolis, 10 cities, uh, and declare what Jesus had done for him. And that, that was one of the few people Jesus, Jesus said, nope, you can't follow me and, uh, and don't keep this one a secret. Just go and tell everybody. Like, this is kind of cool. You might call this demon-possessed guy we saw in verses one through 20, the first missionary, the first one sent out to uh, you know, go on the mission field and go and tell all the things of Jesus. So uh, kind of a cool, cool thing there, the first missionary to be sent. Uh, we'll see the disciples being sent here next week, probably, uh, two by two. We'll see that coming up here pretty soon. Uh, but this is the first guy that really Jesus said, nope, you can't go home tell, uh, to your friends. Tell them all the great things um, how the Lord has done for you and uh, how the Lord has had compassion on you. I love that. So Jesus now, he's gonna make his way back. It's, it's like they almost went to that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee just to, just to heal the demon-possessed guy. And now they're on their way back over the other side again. Um, and we pick up in verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship uh, unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee come and lay hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. Jairus, interesting fellow. Um, and we can read the story and kind of forget some of the nuances. And I always like to sort of think, you know, what were they thinking? And what must have this been like? I always like to try to get in the brains and the, the emotions of some of the characters. And, you know, um, Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. He was one of the religious leaders of that day. Um, question, if you were a religious leader in that day, was it popular to fall down at the feet of Jesus? No, that was like the worst thing imaginable to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, and the rulers of the synagogue. Well, the rulers of the synagogues were usually subservient to the Pharisees and the leaders that were from Jerusalem. So it wasn't, wasn't gonna get you a pay raise, to say the least, uh, if you're falling down at the feet of Jesus, the ruler of the synagogue. This was a dangerous thing to do. Now, 
Now we can understand why he would do such a dangerous thing. It's because, well, he even articulates my little daughter. She, you know, like you can almost hear it in, in, in his words here. You know, he, he says, you know, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Um, it's funny how you, some of your fears start to go out the window when it's someone you love. You'll almost do just about anything, even if it costs you everything. Being a parent is something that's, um, uh, until you've done it, uh, it's, it's really something. You know, uh, I remember when Deb and I had our first child, Brooke, and uh, Deb and I, we, we both realized fairly quickly our, all of our life priorities changed. You know, before you have kids, you're kind of like, I hope my career is successful and I hope my college and all my school and all the things pan out to be something worth it. And you think about what your legacy might be and blah, blah, blah. But once you have kids, you're like, forget me. And you just think suddenly, man, I just want my kids to do good. And you would, you would do just about anything you can. And, and that's a hard one because sometimes your kids don't always do what you want them to do. Uh, or go where you want them to go. And, and that's, that's, that's really something because um, the Bible actually says when a child gets old, they're responsible. It's not you. Uh, even though as parents, you feel so responsible and you are to train them and teach them, but to love, you, you never knew you could love a little person so much as when you have kids. Um, if you're a kid and you wonder why your parents are so weird, it's because they love you so much. It's such a weird thing. And you don't, you don't understand that because uh, you you'll see when you get older. But um, that, you kind of get that. The, Jairus is putting his whole career on the line. Why? Because his little, little daughter is sick at the point of death. And you know any good parent would do just about anything they could um, to save their daughter. That, that's kind of obvious. But you know, this, this, this question you know, still remains, would this cost... J. Iris for doing this? Because it's not that he just comes and kind of covertly looks this way and that way and says, oh, Jesus, would you come and help my daughter? It says here that J. Iris fell at his feet. You only do that when you're worshiping. And we've always talked about these people that were seen at the feet of Jesus. It's always a good place to be at the feet of Jesus. It's a sign of submission, a sign of worship, a sign of humility. Um, Jairus has all of these things. And the, the question is, by this outward display of worship and admiration of Jesus and his authority and power, would this cost him? One of the themes I've been talking about, and, um, and I, I, I sort of wonder, like, uh, how does this fall in the ears of the congregation when I talk about, could it be that you and I will have to make more decisions like this Jairus decision to, to worship at the feet of Jesus and be bold about what we believe, and will it cost us? And the answer is, I believe, yes, it will, because it's already happening right now. We're seeing people who are, you know, just saying, I'm not gonna live by lies and say things that are not true. I'm gonna be an honest, truthful person. And the world says, no, you must use those pronouns, or no, you must believe this about LGBTQ, uh, IA plus, uh, whatever else they're gonna add to the flag and all that stuff, which is kind of grotesque when you really look at all the, what the meanings are. And, and, and the world is cramming their worldview down your throat to where it's starting to get more and more hostile. And I've been kind of predicting this, um, but it's, it's, it's becoming shockingly more and more of reality. And the question I would ask you, are you ready to stand for, for Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? I hope you are. It's easy to say, oh yeah, yeah, I would do that. But but um, you know, it, it was heartbreaking. I know that, that some people are really, really upset at uh, Anthony, ba uh, is, it, is it Bass or Bass? You 
baseball fans should know this. Uh, um, Bass, I think. Um, he's, uh, he's, did you guys see with the Blue Jays, Anthony Bass apologizes for uh, sharing anti-LGBTQIA plus post. Uh, this is all in the news yesterday and today. Um, you know, basically this major league baseball player uh, went out on Monday on his Instagram <laughs> and he, uh, he, sh- he just uh, sort of reposted a video of a Christian guy who was basically arguing the, the reason why biblically you might wanna think about boycotting Target uh, and Bud, Bud Light and stuff like that. Now, um, you gotta understand, I, I've not always been a huge fan of boycotting stuff, and I'll tell you why. Because um, if you boycott one thing, you're kind of pretty much have to boycott just about everything. Like there's so many things you gotta boycott um, in those days. But, but there is a difference, and I do think there's a little bit of a difference between uh, some of the boycotts that are happening today versus 10 years ago. And that is just the overt demonic uh, position some of these companies are taking uh, that make you kind of think, man, I, I can't get behind that. That's why I think this Target bash, backlash and, and the Bud Light backlash has been such a big deal. Um, in fact, it's, it's interesting because this ESPN article kind of spells it out. Uh, Blue Jays Anthony Bass apologizes for sharing anti-LGBTQIA posts. And basically, he, uh, um, the post said, we sh- as Christians should boycott uh, you know, Target, Bud Light, because of the demonic influence that they're trying to have over our children. Uh, uh, you know, the sexualization of children. That, that's, you know, what he was arguing. And, and everybody thought, wow, that's cool that, you know, Anthony you know, Bass said that. But, um, but then the next day uh, he comes out, let me read you his statement. He says, I recognize yesterday I made a post that was hurtful to the pride community which includes friends of mine and close family members of mine. I am truly sorry for that, Bay said. I, I spoke with my teammates and shared it with them, my actions yesterday, and I apologize with them. As of right now, I'm using the Blue Jays resources to become better educated and educating myself to make better decisions moving forward. Now, that, that to me is tragic. Uh, the Blue Jays, I wonder what their little education program of indoctrination and brainwashing is. Um, but it, then, then this was his final statement. He said, the ballpark is for everybody. We include all fans at the ballpark and we wanna welcome everybody. That's all I have to say. The thing about this that's so tragic, now some people are really mad at him and what have you. He, he, he caved, he's a sellout, you know, and he just, but um, I, I'm not gonna judge him on that. Um, I, 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 I'm admiring him for posting it to begin with, but I also feel saddened that he caved. Um, and, but I also wonder what was at stake uh, if I could guess, I bet the Blue Jays managers came and said, if you wanna keep playing on this team, you're gonna go say an apology. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's probably what happened. If you wanna keep your employment. Um, and you kinda, when you watch the video of him with his uh, sort of apology, you, you definitely get a sense he's just kind of uh, saying stuff. But, but you know, when he says the ballpark is for everyone, we include all fans at the ballpark. Was that what he was saying on Monday? that you can't come to the ballpark if you're gay or lesbian or transgender? Uh, No, that's not what he was saying. What he was actually saying, and and I think he forgot this, or maybe he just had to say whatever he had to say, but he he was saying we should stop at Target trying to brainwash children and sexualize children. Uh, It's a very storefront and all the things that are in the store. It's a very different thing. Um, it's one thing to just let people come, you know, know, I could make that statement here at Anthony Greek. We hope, you know, gays and lesbians, transgender people come to our church and they're all welcome here. We're gonna just keep preaching the gospel and sharing the word of God, but we don't exclude people that way. 
We wouldn't, uh, we're called to love one another. But at the same time, we're also called to um, call out things that are evil and we, we should have no part. There's a difference between spending your money at Target or on Bud Light versus uh, having people come to a baseball game. Do you guys see the difference there? Um, I think there's a big difference. In fact, here's what the Bible says about this kind of stuff, if you're curious. Ephesians 5, verses 11 through 14, it says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So when, when Christians are saying, man, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna give our money to these companies that are purposefully pushing the sexualization of children or calling you know, um, you know, men women uh, and saying, we believe that we should support the, the, the movement of men becoming women and tra the transgender movement, um, this is just a, a very dark, evil plot of the enemy. And I, I do believe it's good for us as Christians to call it out. So this you know, major league baseball player, you know, does this, but I'm pretty sure somehow, poor guy, he wasn't really equipped to be ready for the fallout of what he was gonna say. I think he, he was probably some good, I, I don't know the guy, probably some good old boy. Oh, of course, yeah, we don't wanna get behind all this weirdness. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he probably said that and was not really counting the cost. I guess the reason I bring this up as a pastor, are you counting the cost? Because I think you need to be ready. First of all, as Christians, I think we need to be ready to speak the truth. And people are gonna hate you for that. Um, you know, Jesus talked about they hated me, so they're gonna hate you. Even as they hated Jesus and wanted to crucify him, who knows where this is gonna go? You know, it's interesting because I'm somewhat of a student of um, the persecution of the church and so are, so are many of you. You know, you've, if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know, the whole mantra was, you know, Caesar is Lord, instead of saying Jesus is Lord, and they made you say that or else they would kill you brutally. Like there's all throughout the ages, there's all kinds of weird Christian persecution. But there's actually a, an event that happened in the 20th century, uh, not that long ago, that um, is more uh, likened to what's, I think, where we're headed and what, what it's looking like now. And I, maybe, I don't know if you know this, but um, have, has any of you guys, have you ever heard of the, um, the struggle sessions of Maoist China? Does anybody know what that is? Um, it's something a lot of Americans, somehow we missed this in history, but you know, um, the struggle sessions, or they called it denunciation uh, rallies, um, they were basically semi-violent, uh, sometimes very violent public spectacles in Maoist China, where people accused of being class enemies. You see, uh, the Maoist regime wanted to change the way everybody thought about humanity altogether. And if you were old school, you said, well, that's just not true. Then you were deemed a class enemy. And you would be, th these um, struggle sessions, as they were called. In fact, in Chinese, I guess the word struggle is still a word they don't like to use there as much anymore because it refers back to this, the struggle sessions where they would take anybody who disagreed with Mao, Maoist uh, regime uh, and the communist China uh, sort of reframing the human brain. They would publicly humiliate you. They would accuse you and beat you or torture you in front of all your friends. In fact, one of the tactics of this is to get your friends to betray you and then make a big public session. They would put dunce caps on your head publicly. Uh, you can look this up. Um, the process of struggle sessions served multiple purposes in the Chinese 
communist uh, deal. At first, it demonstrated to the masses that the party was determined to, to subdue any opposition, uh, generally labeled, you know, class enemies. So, so it makes sure that, you know, it made people really afraid. Whatever you do, don't say anything, don't do anything. It's a little bit like, you know, we don't see the violent version of this as much as maybe here in China in those days, in the, in the uh, 60s and 70s. Um, but, uh, but we're seeing the same sort of shaming uh, and, uh, and sort of, you know, you gotta publicly apologize for if you said anything wrong. Uh, and by violence, if, if necessary, there were some very violent things that happened in uh, China during this time. But the second thing was potential rivals were crushed. Third, those who attacked the targeted foes became complicit in the violence and hence invested in the state. All three served to consolidate the party's control, which was deemed necessary because party members constituted a small minority of China's population. But this is the way they would change the whole population through fear, intimidation. And the younger the people, the more on board they were with this. So there's all kinds of uh, pictures of children who turned their parents in and stuff like that. The reason I, I, I bring this one up, because uh, this, you might say, Brad, I've never heard of that. That's an obscure thing that happened. Well, it was a big deal if you were in China. Um, but this is a little bit more like what I think we're seeing. And maybe it's even gonna go further than this um, here in the United States uh, than what we're seeing. This whole idea of, remember, remember when Ted Wheeler, uh, we had a little, um, what, what we, we might call our Portland version of a struggle session. Do you remember when Ted Wheeler uh, was uh, during the Black Lives Matter and the whole riots in Portland? And, and remember he was out there trying to be cool with all of the guys, then he got tear gassed and then his house got attacked and he called the police, remember that? And he gets out there and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing where I don't know, I, I should have got the video, but probably not, but um, where he's standing out with his mask on in a, in a big crowd and the crowd's just screaming and they're basically making him say that he's wrong, that he's sorry, and that they're right. And, they, and he was just kind of out there, you know, and you could tell he just didn't know what to do or say, but it was this. And then, and then you also saw, you know, the Black Lives Matter people. By the way, isn't it interesting? You know, I've been talking uh, about Black Lives Matter from the very beginning, even when everybody was doing Blackout Tuesday. I was saying, hello, Christians, are we wanting to um, tear apart the nuclear family and we don't believe in the traditional family, moms, dads, and children? Because that was on Black Lives Matter on their webpage until it started coming out that they were socialist, Marxist, like the whole thing was horrible. And we called them out at the beginning. Now, pretty much everybody realizes, oh yeah, they were totally wacko. Uh, um, and, um, but, but it was funny. Do you remember in the, you know, 2020, the people eating in the restaurants and the people marching in the street, usually white people who are weirdos, making people say, we're sorry. And, and you know, get down on a knee and apologize. Remember that was going on. It's kind of the same thing the Maoist China struggle sessions were doing, only I think it's getting more, uh, more uh, I guess, covert. And, you know, I think this Major League Baseball player's kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, if you say something, uh, people are, are upset because of Chick-fil-A. Uh, you know, they... Um, they, they have a new director of, you know, diversity and, and, and tolerance and all that stuff. And, uh, and, you know, people say, I'm never eating a Chick-fil-A again. And I'm, I'm like, well, I like the chicken too much. I'm not boycotting Chick-fil-A. Um, uh, but, uh, but I also don't think it's the same thing. Uh, Chick-fil-A, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with Chick-fil-A because they've been known as a Christian corporation and they've kind of stood their ground and, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to watch. But today is where some Christians are saying, it's time to boycott. Chick-fil-A. Chick 
Um, I just see this is the exact kind of division and struggle and stress that they're wanting to put on, not just people, but businesses and organizations. I mean, we got the, the Dodgers. Uh, who would have thought baseball, Major League Baseball? I mean, I, I've given up a lot on sports. I used to like sports when I was a kid, but man, when, when did they start saying, hey, let's bring all kinds of crazy political things into sports? So the Dodgers have that, you know, um, transgender, you know, I forget what they're called. I don't even wanna bring their name up and give them credit. Um, but um, they, they, they're known for trans, transgender dressing up and climbing up and doing like a pole dance on a cross where Jesus is being crucified. And this is what the Dodgers say. Yeah, we're gonna have this at our games. It'll be awesome. Um, if, if you're a Dodgers fan, you might wanna just say, mm, no, lo no longer. Like I, I, I think that I can't believe a, a baseball organization would have such a, in your face, anti-Christian, anti-God, pro-transgender kind of thing uh, at a baseball game. Uh, so much for baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and transgenderism. Like uh, that's where we are today. Um, and, and I believe uh, days are numbered. Um, there's gonna be days where you and I, maybe more me than you, uh, are gonna be on the line uh, and it's gonna cost. I, I see a culture that's heading that way really fast. Well, I digress. I didn't mean to spend that much time on that. But, um, but Jairus was willing to just say, you know, I love that he had a reason. His reason was his daughter was dying, which makes it a little easier, wouldn't you say? But what, what do you do when, when it's going to cost you and there's nobody dying except for maybe you? It's the same thing we saw with Peter, James, and John after they were assembled for fear of the Jews in John 20. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they came into the book of Acts with their guns ablazing. And they weren't afraid. And they said, we will obey God rather than men. Even though it would cost them their lives. And it ultimately would, except for John, he would live to be an old man. But Peter, James, they were martyred for their faith. Um, you gotta kind of make your mind up about this stuff long before you have to decide, am I gonna stand for what is true? And am I gonna, and am I gonna speak the truth? Sure, we do it in love. And sure, we always have love for the sinners but we still need to speak what is true. I think this is an important thing. Well, Jairus is kind of one of those guys, he, he had a reason to say, I, I'm not gonna uh, be afraid to bow down before Jesus Christ um, because of his little daughter. What about you? What's it gonna take for us to not be afraid to put our reputation on the line? Well, um, another question here in verses uh, 23 through 24 um, uh, is, it says there in verse 24, Jesus went with them. Question, did Jesus have to go with Jairus to uh, make sure and you know, take care of the daughter situation? Uh, no, in fact, in John, you can jot this down, John chapter four, verses 46 through 54. Let me just read you part of this. Uh, this is a whole nother story in John 4, 46. Jesus came to Cana of Galilee and there was a nobleman whose uh, son was sick at Capernaum. And when Jesus heard that he was out of Judea into Galilee, he went with them and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Same thing. Then Jesus said unto him, except you see signs and wonders, will you not believe? And the nobleman said unto him, sir, come down ere my child die. And Jesus said unto him, go thy way, your son lives. <laughs> and the man believed the word which Jesus had spoken to him and went his way. And when he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, your son lives. And then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend and they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour that when the fever, fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, thy son liveth. 
and himself believed and, the, and this whole house. I love that the, the faith that was wanted to, Jesus wanted to build into this guy, the nobleman of John 4, was to say, I can just speak it and it's a done deal. And that's what this guy needed. So then the question is, why does Jesus say, okay, I'll go with you, Jairus. Um, is there something like, why didn't you say your daughter's, just like your daughter's whole, just like the, he said to this guy in John 4, well, I always love to kind of do an analysis, say, um, was there more that Jesus had to do than maybe just heal the daughter? What, what was Jesus gonna do at Jairus' house? So tuck that away. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, there's a lot of things we can speculate uh, about the mourners that are gonna be here and what they would say and all this stuff. But Jesus wanted to do a greater work, perhaps with Jairus than just say, hey, your daughter's healed, you know, and, and that's all you need. So we'll kind of note that. Um, Maybe, by the way, sometimes I wonder if Jesus allows us to go through tough things that he wants to walk with us a while. Have you ever wondered about that when you're going through difficult times? You know, Jesus could have just said, your daughter's healed, you're good to go. But I wonder if Jesus had something more he wanted to do with Jairus and walk with him. Maybe that's why you're going through difficult times and your answer to your prayers is not happening right now because Jesus wants to walk a while with you. Well, um, so now, you know, they're on their way. Jesus, uh, you know, uh, went with them and the multitudes are thronging and following. Like hey, Jesus is so popular now, there's just multitudes. And that's where we pick up our story from last weekend. Uh, let's read through that again. Uh, verse 25, a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of physicians and spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. And when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her plague. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And the disciples said unto him, thou seest the multitude throngest thee, and sayest thou, who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. We talked about this last week, healed and whole. Jesus had a, a more than just a healing. He wanted her to walk away whole. Same thing as the Mark chapter four story of the guy that took up his bed and walked. But more importantly, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. That was the bigger deal. We learned that in that lesson. And Jesus said, I wanna not only heal you, but I, more importantly, I wanna you know, make you whole. That's what he says to this woman. So go, she, he says, you know, go in peace, be whole of thy plague. You know, the, the Lord wants to do that. I think he wants to comfort and encourage, but he also wants us to go in peace and be whole. That's, that's the plan of Jesus. There's all kinds of promises in scriptures that say that's kind of the condition the Lord wants us in. At peace, whole, trusting in the Lord, going away healthy. I love that. So um, we, we saw this basically that Jesus uh, is, uh, you know, beautifully helping this poor woman. But, um, but it's important. The reason I had, I had us read that again is I, I want us to sense how do you think Jairus is feeling right about now? Remember, Jairus just said, uh, Jesus, my daughter's at the very fringe, at the edge of death. 
and Jesus seems to be lollygagging, dealing with some woman, right? Like if you're Jairus, you're kind of like, uh, time's wasted, Lord. Uh, can, you, you made her healed, you're whole. Can we go now? Like you almost could see this as an interruption. Um, and by the way, you've heard it said before, and it's true. Uh, oftentimes our interruptions are God's divine appointments. Um, when you're interrupted, and especially when you're under stress, you might just look at a, and say, Lord, is this an interruption that comes from you? Because I'm pretty sure this woman that is, um, is you know, with the issue of blood, she has no interruption. Um, the Lord loves her and cares about her and has compassion on her. She's no interruption. And, and you gotta remember the Lord is not interrupted. Like uh, he knows how to handle these kinds of things. But I do wonder, was Jairus kind of thinking, oh man, uh, it's gonna be too late. Um, in fact, um, as we keep reading, it says here in verse 35, now we pick it up again. So the, the, the hiccup in the story is this woman with the issue of blood and Jairus is like, come on, let's go. If you can picture verse 35. And while he yet spake, in other words, while Jesus was saying that last thing, go in peace, be whole to the woman, while he, he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Oh, can you imagine the heartbreak of these words? I mean, as a parent, you can't, uh, you, poor Jairus at this point, what do you do? Do you look at Jesus? Do you look at the woman that was the interruption? Do you look at her with disdain? Oh, if you hadn't distracted us. Um, by the way, I've, I've noticed that it's, it's that human nature thing is to care more about ourselves it's like the Mark chapter uh, five people at the beginning of this chapter who cared more about pigs than people. Um, sometimes we care more about our own thing than others. I'm not saying Jairus did this, but I do, I do think, I, I know my personal reaction to this probably would have been to think, Lord, you know, a little bit Martha, you know, Lord, if you'd only hurried up, uh, my daughter would still be alive. You, you kind of lollygagged, hello. I mean, do you, ever, do you ever find yourself talking to the Lord like, Lord, why are you waiting so long? Why have I been suffering with this for so long? But this is where you have to learn to just say, I'm gonna trust, trust the Lord. Um, this is the proverb, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. This is maybe one of the reasons why Jesus didn't just say, your daughter's healed. Maybe there's, in this drama that I'm presenting right here, maybe this is part of the building of this religious rulers of the synagogue's faith. He's gonna have to go through this trial to have a deeply seated faith in Christ, just like you. When God doesn't come to your rescue right at that very moment, and you wonder why am I going through this difficulty and why is my finances messed up and why is this relationship going awry? You know, and, and you kind of say, why, why, why? And the Lord could be saying, I'm working stuff out with you. I'm wanting to build in you a faith that's gonna be immovable and unshakable. Um, and so your heart does go out for poor Jairus. I think we, many of us have been there where you're kind of like, Lord, did you miss your opportunity? I know that sounds ridiculous, but you can almost start thinking that stuff, especially if it's your daughter. Um, of all things, you'd be feeling pretty horrible right about now. Um, it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, verse 36 um, Jesus jumps in, and I love this, verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. <laughs> wow, those are some powerful words. I mean, he just was told his daughter is dead. You know, in, in the worldly terms, okay, that's final. There's nothing we can do at this point. And here's Jesus saying, you know what? Uh, don't be afraid, uh, only believe. Um, you know, in verse 36, um, 
The highlight uh, in my Bible, I've, I've highlighted this really bright because how many times has the Lord said that to me? Don't be afraid, only believe. <clears throat> and it's really a good thing for us. Um, you know, Jesus was doing a work in this man and, um, and I wonder if maybe that's a good word, those red letters in verse 36 for you tonight. You might feel like, man, my situation is impossible. Um, man, my heart goes out to so many people in our church. I, I know that there's a lot of hurt people. Um, we've got everything from relationships that have been smashed. We have cancer. We have, you know, kids that doing their own thing and going their own way, heartbreaking to a parent. We have, um, you know, uh, people that are seeing their, their own kids being brainwashed by this world and wondering why they're not still walking with Christ as you taught them when they were little. Um, and in some ways, it's like a spiritual death when you lose your kids. And I know there's a lot of people that are going through hard things. I, it's funny because we, you know, in, in Portland, Oregon and the greater Portland area, Metro Portland, you know, people say, what kind of suffering do you go through? You know, you guys are living like Oswego or West Lynn. Come on, surely you guys don't have problems. Um, but you know, I do think when we all get to heaven, we're gonna be shocked at how it all kind of comes out in the wash in different ways. Them suffering and hurting and pain, but you should always remember this little verse here of Jesus, be not afraid, only believe. Um, I think sometimes all we can do, have you ever been to a place where all you can do is cling to the promises of God, where there's nothing left to do but that? Um, there's been times in my life, and, and Debbie and I, we, we've had times in, even in our lives as young parents, you know, where we thought we have no options. It's, it's over, it's tough. We didn't know what to do. Um, but the Lord's promises are always true. I hope, I've been kind of harping on this one because um, the promises of God are in Christ. Yay and amen. It's, it's a done deal. His promises are true. And I hope you can remember his promises. Uh, you know, I, I talk about the promises of God, but you know, hopefully you've got some of my, here's some of my favorites, uh, 12 promises you can maybe uh, remember. And don't forget, the, all these slides are on our teaching on our website. You can get the slides if you want, because I'm gonna go through this really fast. But um, you want God's presence? Uh, Hebrews 13, five, I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, do you want God's protection? Are you feeling invulnerable to the things of this world? Genesis 15, one, I love it says, the Lord says, I am your shield. Um, you know, the Bible talks about the Lord says, I will, you know, fight for you. Um, do you want God's power in your life? These are all promises, you know, uh, Isaiah 41.10, I will strengthen you. The Lord gives you strength. Uh, that's what he promises. Um, the Lord will lead you. Are you looking for God's leading um, in your life or God's provision? Um, uh, the Lord says, I will help thee. And his name is Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides. Um, God's leading, then he puts his forth his own sheep and goes before them. He, he will lead his flock, John 10, verse four tells us, the promises of God as a shepherd. Um, God's purposes, uh, I mean, we can just go on and on. There's thousands of these. Jeremiah 20, 11, uh, you know, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, say the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. And he wants to bring us to an expected end, a future and a hope. He's got purpose for your life and for your problems that you're going through. Um, man, we can just keep listening. God's rest. Um, you guys know Matthew eleven twenty eight. Coming to me, all that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Um, if you need God's cleansing, First John one nine. If we're, if we're, you know, we talk about this on Sunday. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, God's goodness. The Bible says in Psalm eighty four eleven, no good thing will He withhold from them that walk 
uprightly. Um, if you're looking for God's faithfulness, 1 Samuel you know, 12, uh, 22, the Lord says, the Lord will not forsake his people um, for his great namesake. The Lord has a namesake of being trustworthy and uh, he never uh, goes back on his promises. Um, and then, uh, man, we could just keep going, going all these, uh, getting God's guidance. Psalm 25, um, verse nine, the meek will he guide. That's an interesting, will he guide the proud? I'm not so sure, but he promises in his word that he will guide those that are meek in this world. And then God's wise plan. It says that Romans eight twenty eight that God will work all things together for good for those who love God. You see, I'm just so thankful for um, all the good things the Lord promises. And there's more than 3,000 of these promises in the Bible. Um, and if you don't know the promises, you won't be able to cling to the promises. Um, boy, if you and I ever end up in a really bad situation uh, where you know, maybe the world does uh, try to you know, put you away or make you, you know, take away all your stuff or your job or your home or whatever, you know what? That's where you'll really wanna to cling to the promises of God. And hopefully we, we know what they are. Hopefully we actually can remember uh, some of those promises. Uh, so there they are. You know, th this is a great promise. The Lord tells Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. What a specific word to, to Jairus and a good word. Um, well, then it says in verse uh, um, 37, and he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Uh, and he, uh, he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. <laughs> okay, now he's at Jairus' house with the weepers and the wailers. Uh, always interesting. Now, before we, um, we kind of show you the conclusion of this Jairus' uh, daughter situation, um, there's, there's kind of an interesting compare and contrast um, between Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood. Uh, let's take a quick peek at that before we move on. I want you to kind of see this. But um, if you compare the Jairus and the woman, the first thing you'll note is Jairus, well, as it turns out, um, you know, he was famous. He was, he was a ruler of the synagogue. Everybody knew the ruler of the synagogue. That would be almost like the mayor of the town in those days. Um, so Jairus was famous, but the woman is anonymous. In fact, she's had this issue of blood for 12 years. She was probably largely forgotten and unknown. She wasn't, remember, we talked about this on Sunday. She wasn't even supposed to be around people. It was against the law for her to be around people. Um, but also notice that Jairus was wealthy. Um, we see that, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a ruler in the synagogue, he would have been one of the higher ups, you know, in the, in the community. Um, and, um, and she was in poverty. Uh, she had nothing. She'd spent, the Bible says she spent all of her money on doctors uh, and the doctors only made that matters worse. worse, uh, worse. But then you see Jairus ruled in the synagogue, um, but for the woman, she was forbidden to go to the synagogue. Like the, these two people couldn't have been more opposite. Uh, it's kind of interesting. In fact, in Jairus, he was living with 12 years of joy with his daughter, because she was 12 years old, we're told here. But this poor woman was living with 12 years of suffering. And the funny thing is about this compare and contrast is isn't it interesting that the Lord kind of does the same thing for both of these people, even though they're totally different. Um, I, I sometimes think that um, we make a bigger deal out of class 
And if you're wealthier, if you're in poverty, if you live in Africa or if you live in the United States, or if you, you know, we love to split everything up and kind of say, what's the Lord doing and all that. Exact opposites, one of the other. Both of these people, Jairus and the woman, fall at Jesus's feet, which is the right thing to do, both of them. Um, and I guess my point is you might be Jairus um, or you might be the woman in the story. Um, but the truth is uh, the Lord has a, a plan of love for you, no matter who you are. I think sometimes, you know, um, the Jairus, uh, this, this should remind, if you're more of a Jairus, this should remind you to keep ourselves from kind of a complacency where we're just cruising along. Hey, life's good because you never know when things are gonna turn tragic and troublesome. You know, uh, a lot of times I think we as wealthy, famous ruler of the synagogue, 12 years of joy kind of people, um, we forget that self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers and, and problems and even deficiencies in our own being, we just kind of go cruising along in life and we get sort of hit with a problem and then we don't know what to do. Um, sometimes I think the, the Jairuses, we almost get hit weirder or harder by trouble and, we, and, and we're kind of wimpy. The woman, I, I sense this poor woman, she was probably fairly tough after 12 years of that brutal way of life. Um, and she had nothing to lose when she went to Jesus. Jairus had everything to lose. Suffering, this keeps you from despondency. Uh, but being a Jairus, you gotta, this should remind us keeping you from complacency. Um, I think it's an attitude. We all need to kind of consider which one am I? And, and then it helps us discern how we're supposed to live kind of in comparison. I find those comparisons interesting. Same chapter, same part of the story. One, the woman interrupts the Jairus story. It's all kind of intermelded together, this two stories, but there's quite an interesting compare and contrast. But after that, we see here, you know, in verses 37 to 38, we see these professional whalers. Uh, no, I'm not talking about Moby Dick. The whalers are these, you know, they, they had in those days people you would hire to go and and in fact, I've heard this in Israel and it's, it's, it's quite a sight or a sound to behold. Uh, when you see mourners in Jerusalem, oh man, they're expressive and the sounds they make and stuff like that. It's quite uh, like, uh, figure it out on a chalkboard, honestly. Uh, but these, there was hired people. Now the, you see this by the way, um, uh, and it wasn't just the professional whalers. Um, verse 35, there was also f uh, family people there and friends. Uh, while yet spake, remember verse 35, there came from the ruler of the house certain which said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble us the master any, any further? Um, who were these people that came and told Jairus that she's dead? Um, and, and notice they're discouraging him from being with Jesus during a really difficult time. Isn't that interesting that they're saying, don't waste the master's time anymore. Your daughter's dead. Do you have friends like that? Family members like that that are well-meaning maybe saying, hey man, forget about it. Um, don't waste Jesus's time with this. Because um, I know some of you probably do have family members and friends like that. Um, I think there's even people that are often well-meaning but are misguided. Uh, 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 friends are funny. Like, you know, you're going through marriage trouble and you go talk to your friend who's not really a Bible-believing or at least a Bible-knowledgeable Christian. And you're telling them, oh, my husband did this, my husband did that. And you're talking and they say, oh, I think he's a dump the jerk. He's a jerk. Now, as a friend, she's looking out for you. She wants you to leave this guy that's been mean and, and not a nice guy. And he leaves his socks on the floor in the bedroom and stuff like that. Dump him, what a jerk. Um, well-meaning, but misguided. Uh, you know, um, 
Proverbs 19.21 says, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that's what will stand. You need the counsel of the Lord. Watch out for well-meaning friends, um, you know, that are actually speaking the wrong things. A Civil War veteran, a short story writer, Ambrose Bierce, um, he said, the most affectionate creature is the, in the world, the most affectionate creature in the world is a wet dog. Have you ever noticed that? You're out by the river and you're just your dog and as soon as he goes and jumps in and then he comes out, oh, he wants to just right next to you. He'll come stand right next to you. And, and then you're like, come on. You know, it's like, you're wet, you're sopping. Uh, it's true. That's like these well-meaning friends, you know, and, and sometimes you have to kind of see them. They're, they're well-meaning, but not always right. Be careful. The counsel of the world, you know, in, in um, Isaiah chapter 30, the prophet Isaiah, he, he sort of, gives a word from the Lord to the children of Israel that's a pretty solid scolding. In Isaiah 30, he says, woe unto the rebellious children of Israel who take counsel of Egypt, but not counsel from me. Um, Egypt is a type or a picture of the world. And if you know the story there in Isaiah, the, the children of Israel were, they were um, aligning themselves militarily with the Egyptians, which was a bad move. God never approved that, they just did it because they thought it would be militarily prudent. And God says, whoa, you're rebellious because you've taken counsel of the world and not of me. And, and so the children of Israel, you know, the Lord kind of goes through this very eloquent dissertation about how their arrows are gonna be more accurate than your arrows, your enemies. Your, their horses are gonna be more swift than your horses, which is funny because the, what, do you, what, did the main, what was the main thing the Jews got from the Egyptian army? Horses. And they were known for their fast and amazing horses. But the Lord says, yeah, you get those Egyptian horses? Your enemy's horses are gonna be more rapid, uh, fast runners than your dumb Egyptian horses. And the Lord kind of was very clear with them. So it's kind of cool because eventually the children of Israel repented and said, okay, we're sorry, Lord, for aligning with Egypt. And so they broke off their alliance. And then the Lord says, listen, if you tune in, I will be that still small voice and I will whisper when to turn to the right and when to turn to the left. This is what the Lord wants to do for you and me. The world's blasting their counsel. Do this, do that. And they're saying, you know, stuff. I hear such horrible, if you are a Dr. Phil fan, watch out. <laughs> worldly counsel, Oprah, man, I, it's not only worldly, uh, she's pretty much a priestess of Satan. I'm sorry, I know that you have, but <laughs> she has the most, uh, she's just close enough to where people think she's a Christian, but she's in her own words said, I am not a Christian because she says, I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus to be saved. Um, there are many paths in her new age. She's just total new age. That's what Oprah Winfrey is. And yet it's amazing how many women just listen and, her, and on her little you know, uh, new age channel, uh, listening to her spiritual guidance, uh, which is pretty much from the pit of hell. It's amazing to me how people are duped so easily. Don't be a dupe. Don't take the counsel of this world, but be, you know, listen to the still small voice. By the way, that still small voice is that one where the Lord whispers in your ear, I think specifically for you. It's pretty cool when the Lord does that. But there's something I also love about the Lord. He's not only got a still small voice, but he's also got a booming thunderous voice too. And it's right here, the Bible. The word of God is written in black and white. Like this is the good solid counsel right here. And if you hear a still small voice, make sure that aligns with this because that still small voice might be the Lord, but you need to discern that because there's also an evil still small voice that will, you know, it's like the cartoon with the little, you know, demon on one shoulder and the angel on the other. That's pretty much true. 
the enemy's whispering in your ear as much as the Lord will say, here's the way, walk ye in it. So just be really careful ab- about this. I think it's, it's important. Well, anyways, uh, so these wailers uh, are wailing greatly uh, and the, the tumult, Jesus hears the loud noise, the tumult. Now in verse 39, it says, and when he was come in, he saith unto them, why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Man, uh, th- so what does it say in verse 40? And they laughed him to scorn. Uh, this is what hired mourners do. They're all, <laughs> like, do you see the difference here? Suddenly they're, they're mourning and all, <laughs> like, boy, a change of uh, emotion really quick here. They're just hired mourners. Um, but, but Jesus says, she, the damsel is not you know, uh, dead, she's sleeping. Now, this is, by the way, where a lot of people embrace this idea of soul sleep when you die. Uh, and I don't believe soul sleep. I wanna share this with you. If you were raised like, you know, um, some of the Seventh-day Adventist people kind of believe in a soul sleep. If you were raised in that tradition, there's others who do too. But um, I wanna show you some stuff about this because this is kind of important. The, the New Testament doesn't support soul sleep. Um, it, it might more accurately pre- uh, present body sleep. Well, what's the difference? Well, your soul and the body, would you agree they're different things? Uh, you and I are made up of body, soul, and spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. But um, when it comes to you dying, some people say you die and you're buried, but your soul is sleeping there in the, in the grave, there at the cemetery, uh, you know, until the, the rapture of the church, first Thessalonians, and when the dead in Christ shall rise, you know, and all this. And you think, oh, that's us. And that's when our soul will be awakened or in the resurrection, you know. But the problem with that is that it doesn't line up with other scripture. You always have to kind of make sure that your belief system works all across the Bible. And the people that teach verse by verse through the Bible usually get that because you have to teach those verses with a straight face. Um, if you're making up stuff, you can show stuff. Oh, see this woman here, she's, she was asleep. She wasn't really dead, but she was dead. She's gonna raise her from the dead, but she, she was only asleep, a soul sleep. They make that conclusion. Well, Luke 23, 42 through 43. Do you remember this discussion with Jesus and the thief on the cross? Jesus said, unto, uh, and he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not uh, today you're gonna be asleep in your soul for a couple thousand years. We'll see you when you wake up, Rip Van Winkle, uh, or whatever. Like, uh, that's not what he said. Now he said, today you'll be with me. Uh, check this out, 2 Corinthians 5 Verses six through eight. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. That means when we're alive. But it says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When you die, your soul is now absent from the body and you go to be with the Lord. As soon as you die, you're with the Lord. That's why Paul said it in Philippians chapter one, verse 23 through 25, he says, remember when Paul's like, I kind of wish I could die. Um, now he wasn't suicidal. It's just that he wanted to be with the Lord. He was tired of this life in this world. He's like, I, I'd like to be with the Lord right now. And this is what he says. He says, for I am in a strait betwixt two. I'm struggling with this. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So that's just the King James way of saying, man, I wish I could kick the bucket so I could be with the Lord. Uh, but nevertheless, I better stay alive because that's what God has. It's good for you guys, the church, 
in Philippi, verse 25, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and, and joy of faith. So Paul knew it wasn't his time to die. He had work to do. But notice that Paul made this. Was he mistaken when he said, um, I'd rather desire to, be, to depart or die and to be with Christ, not to go to this grave and go to sleep for a couple thousand years, uh, but, but to depart and be with Christ. So this idea of soul sleep, um, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I believe the moment you die, your soul goes right to heaven if you're a Christian. And that's an important thing to remember. Um, now, um, all that to say, soul sleep takes away from the Bible what the Bible's telling us, you know? Um, uh, and, and by the way, I, sometimes I wonder if some of these confusions are people not really doing the math of things that are far beyond us, you know? For example, um, do you remember where in 2 Peter 3, 8, where the Lord says, but beloved, be, don't, be not ignorant of this one thing that to be um, uh, with the Lord is like a thousand years, but a thousand years as, as one day. What's going on with that? It's talking about the relativity of time. And, um, and does God exist outside of time and space? See, we all have this thing that your grandma's up in heaven looking down upon you right now. Uh, praying that you'll stop, you know, doing bad things and hoping you get to heaven. Uh, that's what you learned when you were a kid. Could it be, I mean, just, just something to think about. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment you die, you go right to be with the Lord. But uh, a thousand years with the Lord is as a day, and then you reverse it, but a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Um, do you remember Ecclesiastes 1.9? The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun, Huh? What? It's basically saying that which has already happened really hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but that which has already happened or hasn't happened, it already has. Um, what's going on there? Um, when God exists outside of our time and space and all our laws of dimension and time and all that stuff, could it be that God is more in a, in a state of existence, all encompassing existing of time? We as humans, we live linear from you know, date to date timeline. It'd be like if you look at the parade, uh, the Rose Parade that we used to have, that was nice. Uh, now, I don't think anybody goes anymore because you might die. Um, but, um, but, you know, if you're sitting on the side of the road, uh, you're looking at the parade go by linearly. But if you get up in the, you know, coin six helicopter and you fly high above Portland, you could see from the beginning, you see the whole thing all at one time. Um, in a way, do you wonder if God sees the universe in his all-existent, all-powerful, omnipotence, all-presence and everything, all-power, and, and he just kind of exists outside of time, which means something interesting, if you think about it. Could it be that when grandma arrives to heaven, you arrive at the exact same time? Like you're all there, just boom, all at the same time. Well, Brett, that's not uh, the, what the movie God's Not Dead, or no, not that one. <laughs> heaven is real or whatever. Uh, I didn't see that on the movie. Well, I, I'm just talking about the Bible. You can look at movie, Christian movies for your doctrine, or you can kind of go to the Bible. But I wonder, I wonder if maybe we'll be shocked that, that when we get to heaven, we'll all be outside of time. The marriage feast of the lamb. Now, there's some also interesting implications. How long will we be with the Lord in heaven? Who knows? Meanwhile, back on earth in our little linear parade of time, the parade starts getting real ugly, the seven years of the tribulation period. And then we return with the Lord at the end of that time of the seven years. How long will we have been in heaven? Who knows? 
See, some of you are like, we'll be there seven years. Well, outside, in heaven, we'll be outside of time. Like who even knows how long we'll be with the Lord in that? I, I know your brain starts to short circuit when you think in these sort of terms, but, but I'm pretty sure we don't get it. Uh, and when we get to heaven, we'll go, oh. Um, I think Einstein may have been closer to understanding some of this than just about anybody. And uh, when they asked Einstein to, to say, is there anybody that, else that understands your theory of relativity? He says, there's two people. And they said, who? And he said, I understand my theory of relativity. And they said, who's the other one? He says, I'm still looking for that person. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, the idea of, you know, uh, how many dimensions are there really? Uh, there's some interesting science that's making some really shocking claims even now. Um, but I think God is way bigger and more powerful than what we even know. This is, by the way, that's called the theory of the eternal now. Is what you like. If you wanna do a little more study on that, that God exists outside of time, it's possible. So uh, all that to say, um, back to Mark chapter five. Sorry, I get off course here. Jesus is not talking about soul sleep. Um, now you might say he's talking about body sleep <laughs> uh, because there is perhaps that. If believers go to be with Christ immediately after death, what's the purpose of this resurrection uh, that the Bible teaches? It seems that while souls and spirits of believers go with Christ immediately at death, the physical body does go down in the grave uh, and you might, you might be able to say sleeping. Um, at the resurrection of believers, the physical body will then be resurrected and you say, great, Brad, I'm gonna keep my body. Good news, uh, you're gonna get what is called a glorified body, but it is linked to your old body. That's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but it'll be glorified and reunited with the soul and spirit. Um, the reuniting of your body. Uh, now, some people say, but oh no, we cre cremated Aunt Matilda. Uh, oh no, she's gonna be bodiless. Um, <laughs> do you understand that God can put together what a, you know, uh, what a, I don't know, oven can do. God can put that all back together uh, molecularly uh, just as much as what, you know, a thousand years in a grave can do. Like it's, it's not a problem for the Lord, but the idea is in eternity, there'll be new heaven, new earth. And if you read Revelation 21 and 22, there's this kind of this new resurrected body that we, we talk about. So some people talk about body sleep. That's probably more um, understandable than this idea of soul sleep. Are you guys with me on that one? A lot of confusion, by the way, on that one. And they're really, it's unfortunate. Well, um, these mockers are laughing him to scorn. Verse 40, they laugh him to scorn, but when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with them and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel um, uh, by the hand and said to her, Talithi, uh, uh, pardon me, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted damsel, I say unto thee, arise. I love this. It says here, he took her by the hand and spoke um, these um, erroneous, uh, or pardon me, uh, or I should, I should say uh, Aramaic, what am I thinking? Aramaic words. Why does he use the Aramaic? Well, this is Mark, uh, probably. Mark translates this for the Greek reader or speakers. Uh, and it just means little girl, get up. Uh, that's what, what it, so it was, it was kind of the wording. Jesus used Aramaic words there. Um, so don't be confused by the, it wasn't some magical incantation. I hope you know that. Uh, you're gonna try that next time somebody, you know, talith, talithi, kumi. No, it's just the Latin say, little girl, get up. Well, um, one of the other things, um, sometimes you need to get the mockers out of your life, don't you? Um, there's a point where you gotta stop trying to 
uh, deal with the mockers. Uh, and for some of you, well, it kind of reminds me of what Jesus taught where you and I, we're not supposed to throw our pearls to the swine. And you, maybe you've tried to share the love of Christ with people and even say, you know, this is what the Lord's doing. And they laugh at you and scoff at you. There's a point where you need to sort of depart and get them out. The scoffers need to be driven out sometimes. And that might mean friends, old friends or family members. Sometimes you gotta leave your father, mother, sister, and brother and follow Jesus. Some of you try to cling to family. Members. Oh, you can't, I gotta always love my family and always have them over to our house and always do this. But if, they, if it gets bad enough, there's a point where you have to kind of say, time to get the scoffers out. I just wanna say that because I notice there's still people that kind of cling to that, hoping only. Uh, you, I, sometimes I wonder if the scoffers will actually thwart the work that Jesus wants to do. And Jesus says, get these people out of here. I think that's interesting. Um, notice also with me, um, Peter, James, and John are the only guys who get to go into this. All the other disciples have to stay outside. Um, Peter, James, and John, they're definitely the inner circle. They're the guys that get to uh, do some of the coolest things. Um, where did Jesus pull those guys aside? There were just three main times. The, the raising of the dead of Jairus' daughter, that's one of the things they got to do. And uh, also in chapter nine, verses one through eight, the transfiguration, when Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah, he brought Peter, James, and John. And then also he brought Peter, James, and John to the Garden of Gethsemane um, in chapter 14, verse 33. Um, these are the three places where they... Um, where they got to see him. But every single one of those times where Peter, James, and John got to see this intimate kind of powerful moment, his power over death physically and eternally was displayed in all three of those uh, situations, um, that Jesus is the one who has power over death. Um, well, um, I love that. They get to see this little girl raised up. Straight wavers, 42, uh, the damsel arose and walked for she was at the age of 12. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Apparently being dead makes you real hungry. So she's like, give, her, give the girl a ribeye. You know? <laughs> uh, I love that Jesus cares even about the detail of her needing food. Give, give the girl something to eat. Um, I love that. Um, that's the savior, that's the Lord. I love this story, uh, this whole story, the woman with the issue of blood, Jairus' daughter, the way Jesus moved and handled himself. Um, there's so much to learn about things we can do as well. Well, we'll, we'll cover chapter six uh, starting next week in Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for this uh, passage. Your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that it would do its work on our heart and our souls, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to all be people who put our trust in you, um, Lord, and your promises. Lord, I, I pray for those who are going through difficult times, that they would receive this word from Jesus, that they can just believe and trust what your word says and, and that your promises are true. Lord, for the discouraged tonight, I pray that you would build up their strength, Lord, that they would put their trust in you and lean not on their own understanding whether they're Jairus or the unidentified woman. Either way, Lord, through good times, bad times, we still wanna put our trust in you. So bless these, your people, Lord, as we go our way on this evening, I pray that your word would just be in our hearts and that we'd meditate day and night and be like the tree firmly planted by the river of water. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.